0: Dette er live fra Det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Hansen. Du skal nu lytte til en samtale mellem Karsten Jensen og Josef Belsikoff. Karsten Jensen er forfatter og debatør og aktuel med sin bog Øvelser i afsked en coronakrønike. Bogen handler om livet under pandemien, ensomhed, sorg, klimakrisen og om verden derefter. I samtalen beskriver Carsten Jensen, hvordan han en måned før pandemien buller ind over Danmarks grænser, bliver ramt af dyb sorg, da han mister sin stedsøn. Så det bliver en samtale om afsked. Afsked med stedsønnen, afsked med en livsform, som pandemien sætter stopper for, og afsked med en måde at tage livet og kloden forgivet på. Men det er også en samtale om genstart og håb, og om de unges klimaaktivisme. Arrangementet er en del af Østersøfestivalen fra Sveriges Radio, der kombinerer klassisk musik med talks alt sammen med fokus på klima og bæredygtighed. Samtalen er med Josef Belsikov fra Stockholm, som blandt andet er kor- og orkesterchef i Sveriges Radios Koncerthus Bærvaldhallen. Rigtig god fornøjelse.
1: And it's a true privilege to sit here together with you, Karsten Jensen welcome you. to you. Thank you. I'm very lucky to have this conversation with a Danish author and a public intellectual that I can actually read in the Swedish newspapers almost every second week. How come you are so present in Sweden?
2: Well, the reason is I'm quite active on Facebook. But I use Facebook as I would use a newspaper for long analytical comments, which is a bit unusual on, on Facebook. And then when I feel they are fitting for an, out, a, an audience outside of Denmark, readers outside of Denmark, I send it to Dagen's Nyheder, with whom I have a very, very long uh, tradition of cooperating. It goes back all the way to the 90s. And so sometimes they accept it and sometimes they don't. <laughs> and sometimes they uh, ask me uh, to, to write something like the Sunday when Kabul, and that is all of Afghanistan, fell into the hands of Taliban. The editor from Dagens Nyheter, Björn Wiemann. Uh, contacted me and said, can you deliver in a couple of hours? And I could. So, so that's why you quite frequently see me in, in the leading Swedish newspaper, Dagens Nyheter.
0: Mm.
1: You have said once that um, your greatest asset as an author is your empathy. But as a public intellectual, you are of, often very confrontative and polemic. How do you move between these positions?
2: Well, you know, I I didn't say, I didn't praise myself as being especially empathetic. I used it as a way to describe the novel, the literary genre, which I think is the genre of empathy. When, as a reader, you sit with a novel in your hands, you enter the head and the body of somebody who is not you. For a moment, for a few hours, you are the visitor in a totally different world. If you are a man reading about women, you are in a woman's body. And the other way around, or you might be in another culture, another historical epoch. And I think that's what makes the novel such a great genre. But as a public intellectual, yes, um, that's a different genre with different rules and possibilities and yes I can be quite confrontative and I'm not a politician so I'm not looking for you know um, popularity somebody once said about a totally different thing it's a dirty business but somebody's got to do it Mm. and I feel the same a bit about being a public intellectual Uh, you need to say the things that nobody else wants to say. Um, The Italian writer Umberto Eco uh, gave a different metaphor. He said, if a house is on fire and the um, the firemen are there already with their water hoses and fighting the fire, I don't see any need to go there. But if a house is on fire and nobody comes, I come running with my little bucket of water. And that's how I see myself. Mm -hmm. If there is an issue that nobody wants to confront, nobody wants to try to understand or analyze, then I try to be there. And of course, sometimes that does require empathy too. Of course, sometimes it requires, I'd say, yes, need for confrontation because being a public intellectual is also confronting the powers that be. With a bit of empathy included maybe. Yes and and no. I I remember once when I wrote about a politician from the extreme right in Denmark, the Danish People's Party, uh, and I ridiculed him. It was satirical. And there was somebody who said, but how do you ever hope to reach him if you ridicule him. And my answer was, I don't want to reach him. I don't believe I can. So I want to diminish his status among people. I want to show that his attitude is really, really bad for democracy. And that's why I choose confrontation or satire.
1: From my perspective, and I might be mistaken being in Sweden, but you feel, it feels like you don't have that much company from other authors and uh, public intellectuals in the debate in Denmark. Do you sometimes feel alone in the public arena?
2: Well, I mean, if you ask me that directly, yes, I sometimes do, but it doesn't bother me.
1: Hmm.
2: It doesn't bother you? No, it doesn't. Okay. I mean all just like um, tough criticism or let's say tough attacks don't really bother me. Actually, I sometimes feel they are quite affirmative. They show that I have said something important. Hmm. It's like if you throw a stone and a dog starts howling, it's because you hit it. You enjoy it? My wife claims that I enjoy it, yes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you say to her then? (laughs) Well, yes, I admit it, yes. I confess to sometimes enjoying Mm. the fight, yes. Mm. (laughs) I mean,
1: we are here in the frame of the Baltic Sea Festival, the music festival in Stockholm, but we are also here to talk about uh, this book of yours that you wrote. and on February six, your stepson Raphael suddenly dies at the age of twenty-five.
2: Yes, in two thousand and twenty.
1: Yeah, the last year, and then the pandemic came a few weeks after that. Yes, which is like the premise of you writing this book. Yes,
2: yes. Because my wife and I felt it was a strange coincidence, because when when something that terrible happens to you. Losing a child, I think, is the worst thing that can befall parents. And I was not the father, but I was part of it anyway. We'd known each other for 20 years when, when Rav died. Uh, you do retire a bit from life. You are not especially social. I know there are cultures where, I mean, families and friends surround the grieving. They feel it's essential. There's someone around them. But it's not like that in our culture. And we didn't have the impulse to see other people we were just totally struck by this tragedy. And and then all of a sudden, just four or five weeks later, the whole world went into a quarantine. And in a way, we felt that it it was somehow as if the whole world was grieving, as if everybody retired. The doors were closed, the streets were empty, uh, we didn't need to apologize if we didn't feel like going to a party on and receiving saying yes to an invitation because there were no parties nobody invited us everybody had to stick to themselves it was not a choice it was forced on on most of the world this we called in D- in denmark we called it self isolation and that's what everybody went into including us we had of course, other reasons to do it, much more personal reasons. But in a strange way, and don't misunderstand me, but in a strange way, it was a relief to us. We didn't need to explain ourselves to anybody. But I also saw it, and this is the title of my book, Exercises in Parting, that somehow um, the pandemic was related to that climate crisis that is now haunting the whole planet. And it was, in a way, a warning about what is to come. And in that way, we were, with our self-isolation, with our abruptly changed of lifestyle, Mm -hmm. no traveling, airplanes going nowhere, airports being empty, streets being empty. Um, We were, in a way, having a first exercise in what is to come when the climate crisis deepens, which it will.
1: You were there, uh, I mean, in this situation, and and you have a path, uh, a quote in your book, which says that as long as you or as long as we talk or write, death keeps us on distance. What do you mean with that? Can can you repeat it? When uh, we talk or write. Yes. Death keeps itself on distance. We keep death away from us.
2: Well, you know, I, I did a lot of writing in mm. this period, and that's how the book came about. Yeah. And I felt somehow that writing was therapy for mm. me, and, and that the very thing of trying to find the right words for what had happened to us, uh, as parents and relatives with this terrible, tragic loss, but also what was happening to us as a civilization was in a way to not come to terms with it, but in in understanding, in finding the words, there is I think an essential struggle of trying to cope with life, I think also that's what art and literature is about. Mm. Coming to terms with life, not necessarily uh, celebrating life, not necessarily thinking that it makes meaning because a young person's death makes no meaning at all. There is no way you can make it, give it sense. Um, I mean, it's nature. And we have to realize that Nature is not necessarily always our friend. And we have come to think uh, in in this phase of industrial civilization that we have become the masters of nature, but we haven't. Uh, It is somehow stronger than us and acts in unexpected ways. And I think writing is an important way of trying to make I won't say sense, or let's say make a relative sense of it, live with it, maybe, Mm. is a better expression. Mm.
1: Your wife, Liz Janssen, is also a writer. Yes. What did she
2: think about you writing this book? She felt it was good for me, but it was also part of the ongoing dialogue we had, Mm. Uh, because we, we very much felt that this was a shared experience. Even though I realized that to her, it was so much tougher. And I realized that when my, I have a daughter who is 25 and she asked me, what if it had been me, dad? What if I had died? And it just burst out of me. In that case, I don't know whether I wanted to continue living. And I just said it spontaneously. I heard myself saying it. It wasn't kind of a product of a thought process. And when I said that, I realized this is my door to understanding my wife and her loss. That is how she feels and that's what somehow I need to navigate uh, according to to that. This is the life we have now. Not necessarily forever, but uh, there was a Uh, We were in the United States Mm. when it happened. And uh, at the flat we had rented, there was a a host that I talked to, and it turned out he had lost his son too some years ago, and in an even more tragic way because it was a suicide. And he said, you will get through it, but you'll never get over it. And I think that was the wisest thing anybody said. Because you have this saying, I mean, which is a cliché, but sometimes cliché contain a truth, too, that um, time heals all wounds. And I felt this is not a wound. It's something else. It's an amputation. It's losing a limb. And of course you can survive losing a limb, but your way of moving will forever be different. You have to learn how to move in new ways whether it's a leg or an arm you have lost, or a hand. And uh, I later discovered, and I wrote that, that it felt, I wrote that immediately, this is an imputation. And I, being a writer, I saw it somehow, it was a metaphor I had come up with that I had somehow invented for this um, thing happening. But then later, when I, I started reading about, you know, others who had suffered a similar loss, and there is, especially in, in, in English literature, but also to some extent in Danish, a whole grief literature where people who suffer the loss like that tries to come to terms with it and help others in a similar situation, and everywhere there the metaphor amputation just pops up spontaneously. This is what people feel like. It's not a wound that will heal one day. No, it is an amputation you are not the same person after that. So how do you survive? Well, I think that what you discover, I discovered a word that had never before uh, been on my mind that I had never used in any kind of private relations. I discovered the word duty. I discovered there is a duty to live. You can't just give up or abandon it. Because, I mean, life is a gift and you have to take care of it. And you have to take care of the life of others too. Mm. You do in a way, dramatic way, realize that even though a a, a certain death of a young person that might be your child seems to take away all meaning in life, because it really does, there is still meaning in being there for other people. They still need you. You still have a role to play, and I think that's what gets you go, keeps you going. Mm.
1: You read a lot during this period, also uh, probably always a reader, but especially now. And you write the uh, in the book that you read the Polish author and Nobel Prize winner, uh, Olga Tokarczuk. And she writes, if it had been possible to look at the world honestly and bravely without any defense mechanisms, then our heart would burst.
2: Yeah. And I felt that was so true. Mm. Um, it, It just hit me that this is true. And so we have all these defense mechanisms to get through life, which might be religion, which might be rituals, which might be writing. Um, But we need these defense mechanisms because confronted with the brutality of life and sometimes meaninglessness of life, how do we survive? I mean, and one of the reasons we survive are that we are also part of a society that has a very ancient experience with loss and has developed rituals and ways to to cope with it. But I'll say that... modern society is not very good at coping with death because we have somehow, from a condition of life, we have changed it into a mythical condition. It's like you always die at hospital, as if it was an illness that somehow with the right treatment could be prevented, um, as if death was always a surprise, an accident. It isn't, it's something you just got to realize that your days are counted, uh, that you will not leave endlessly, live endlessly. And somehow, I mean, also in the cult of use, it's a compliment to say to an old person, oh, you're very useful, or you look very young. But why is that a compliment? I mean, it should be a compliment to say, you are old and therefore very wise. But that's not how we feel it. Uh, a good old person is one who pretends not to be old.
1: True. And Raphael was not that old, of course, when he died.
2: It no, was he an, was 25. Yeah,
1: it was an unknown heart condition. but Yes, I mean, un, undiagnosed. Un, undiagnosed. Uh, yes. But he lived for 25 years, and you write also that regardless of how long you stay on the planet, you sort of leave some sort of mark after you, and you... There's another Nobel Prize-winning Polish uh, poet, Wislawa Szymborska, yeah. that you also quote quite a few times in the book.
2: Do you know the the words by heart? Well, no, I don't, but yeah. I know the essential yeah. words, which is that um, she says that death always comes too late, and that sentence makes some people what? But then she continues to say, what you have already accomplished. The things you did in your life, death cannot take away from you. Um, And in the same way, when when you are confronted with somebody dying, as when you reach my age, there are friends dying. And of course, Mm. you lost your parents long ago. But you realize that there's not one final goodbye. There are so many goodbyes. They keep coming back to you. Mm. It is as if even though you could say you die, you disappear into the darkness, sometimes it is as if they stay there in the hall, like guests who don't really want to go because they have become part of you. You have an ongoing dialogue with the dead. And the older you get, the more strongly you feel it.
1: Mm. Another word that comes to mind in the book is, you you only pass that line once, but it's acceptance how do you come to acceptance?
2: Yes, I, I think that's a very difficult thing to answer. But of course, when you read about grief, and there's a, a, a psychologist called Elizabeth Kühler-Ross, who's become a, a kind of authority on grief, and she listed different phases, and the end phase was acceptance. Um, and... Yes, I guess that is what must be the end phase, acceptance. But it's, excuse my language, fucking hard to reach. Mm. Uh, There's so much in you that rebels against it. But of course, if you reach it, there is a certain kind of peace of mind in it. Um, She was criticized later for these various phases because it, it was kind of promoted as if this was... Obligatory faces, one coming after another, and she then said, No, it's not. It might be very kind of helter skelter, uh, a mess. Mm. And yes, it is. Sometimes you feel you accept it, and you wake up the next morning and you don't accept it. Everything in you screams in protest.
1: This line from Symborska, as far as we've come, can't be undone. Um, I mean, it also. Uh, is connected to the big theme in this book, the climate question. Yes. Yeah. And there's a dilemma called the tragedy of the commons, which sort of translated into this context would be that we all together and globally, of course, would benefit from an immediate and drastic reduction of emissions. But we ourselves individually, whether it's a nation or a person, gain more from continuing with our own emissions. Because why should we stop if the others don't? Mm. Would this be an explanation, you think, to why it's going so slow with the change
2: for us? Well, I mean, there are very strong powers that want us to continue with our present lifestyle. And it's built into our whole way of seeing our relationship with the world that um, grows, is a holy word. There must be growth continuously. We have a concept of, of progress, which means getting richer and richer as nations, acquiring more and more wealth, more and more goods, uh, consuming more and more. That is our idea about a good life. And it's clear that this idea has already long ago went gone into crisis because investigations have shown that more and more parents do not any longer believe that their kids will have a better life than they had. I mean, that's been... We've grown up with that generation after generation was totally convinced that their children would have better lives, more material goods, more wealthy, better jobs, and so on. And that belief has been broken. And um, and it is as if... and And, you know, what kind of when the pandemic started and long into it, there was this promise from politicians, one day normality will return. But I think the return of normality is not a promise, it's a curse because normality was already broken before the pandemic started. The climate crisis was there. Just saying a few months before it came, the whole Australian continent was on fire and it's estimated that 1 billion animals lost their lives. And during the pandemic, California was on fire. There was no night in San Francisco because the air was heavy to breathe from suit and, and the gigantic forest fires lit up the sky so darkness never came. No matter if it was midnight or not. So, and this is the new normality. That is not the normality we should restore. That is not what we should aim at. Having the same gigantic CO2 emissions as we had before. There was a pause, but I, I'm afraid. I'm, you know, I really feel that. In a way, the pandemic was a chance to rethink our relationship with nature. And now, as the pandemic in the rich part of the world is ebbing out, but not in the third world, but here it is, uh, I think it's a lost chance. I think that the powers that want us to return to the broken normality of the pre-pandemic are winning out. Um, And so it's an ongoing struggle, this thing about Trying to prevent the climate crisis of going totally out of hand, which it might very well do if we do not somehow slow down. And and you know, uh, there's a lot of people, and and my title might also hint at it, saying exercise it in parting, saying goodbye. But I think it's very important to stress that a sustainable society need not be a dystopia, which is all about loss and saying goodbye to a good life. No, it might also be an utopia with a much better life, with a much better relationship with nature, with work, uh, with other people. Because, I mean, a a nation's wealth and its state of mental health to its happiness is always measured in the gross national product, in gross. But there is another kind of never statistically measured uh, gigantic effort in any society. That is all the unpaid work. Parents take care of their children. We take care of friends. All the love and care that is not seen as work. But what if we could make a kind of change of values that did not focus fixate on gross national product but on all these human qualities that keep us going that's a radium thought are you pessimistic or you know i was uh, many years ago i i was very uh, fascinated by an italian Philosopher who also happened to be the founder of the Italian Communist Party, Antonio Gramsci, mm. um, who spent the eleven last year of his life in Mussolini, the fascist leaders' prison where he died, and he kept writing secretly, and his sister in law smuggled out all his notebooks and and there he sums up his own situation as pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. I mean, he had no reason to be an optimist. Mm. He knew he was gonna die in prison. He saw fascism going, getting stronger and stronger in Europe and all the forces he believed in being on retreat. But in the same time, he believed in the will to act, uh, the will to build something better. So he was, in a way, divided between this paradox. His intelligence told told him this is going to shit. And his will told him, no, I will not accept that. There is, if just we manifest, if we act, if we manifest our will, there's always a chance. And um, I saw a movie called um, First Reformed, by this old director Paul Schrader who was famous for uh, writing the script for Taxi Driver mm. many years ago. And and uh, this is about a priest who gets engaged in climate struggle. And um, he meets a young climate activist who doesn't want to become a father because he thinks you can't put a child into a world as doomed as this And um, he then gives him a speech where he talks about hope and despair. And he says the hope and despair coexist. Hope without despair is just empty optimism. And despair without hope will bring you down. Uh, So he sees life as a kind of, in each of us, ongoing struggle between these two forces that in a strange way defeat each other. Um, and And that's a bit how I see it too so i won't i'll say I won't just say i 'm a pessimist, nor will I just say i'm an optimist, mm-hmm. but I do believe in our will to change the world for the better, even though it sometimes is as history shows uphill
1: and I have to be an opponent for a few seconds and say that many thinkers and philosophers would say that maybe does it matter if we are facing the end of humanity? What do you think? Does it matter? And then for whom? Because, I mean, if there is no one left, the moral question is out of the picture and, and there is no one to relate
2: to. No, I think it's quite misanthropic, I must say. <laughs> uh, I do think it matters, because I do think we are a unique species. And, and one of the things that make us u- unique is that we have the talent for self-correcting ourselves. We do have the, ta- the ability to look critical at ourselves and try to make our mistakes good again. Um, and and um, I once read, and I think it is a very interesting sort, that the messianism that comes from Christianity, the belief that one day we will all end up, the good of us, of course, in heaven, that things will turn for the better, messiahs will come and save us, actually had a kind of inheritor in the workers' movement who believed in progress in making lives much more livable for the poor and the downtrodden. Uh, and there is, an, and and a Swedish writer like, P. Olof Lindquist was very much into that thinking and wrote several novels about it that I learned a lot from. I was a great admirer of P. Olof Lindquist and I had the privilege to meet him a few times, which I never forgot. But, um, and I think what has happened now is that in a way that time has become our enemy because we think that the future will be worse and worse. We have lost our belief in that as time passes, it will pass in the name of progress and things will be better. But I think we need to make friends with time again, believe in the future, re-establish our belief in the future. And we need to do that by making, creating sustainable societies where we stop this tragic um, struggle between man and nature. Mm where we find a new kind of harmony, which also requires that we become humble, because we are also an arrogant species. Or our Western culture is arrogant. Not all cultures are arrogant. Some of them are actually very humble, uh, and we could learn from that, which also, I think, is, is opening up again to wisdom in other cultures, even lost cultures that are long gone
1: i sense somehow that you have a strong relationship to music do you yeah i sense (laughs) that Uh, let me try hear me out (laughs) there is at least a sequence in your book uh, with the drowned where the prisoners of war from different parts of the country are kept in a church and there everyone first gathers in small groups according to where they come from but eventually they are united in singing songs that they all know together. Maybe the schnapps had something to do with it also, but what are your thoughts about music uh,
2: as a unifying force? Well, I have to confess something. I, I am not very much into classical music. I'm sorry to say, but I'm not. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's somehow, and I even have a, a friend who's a pi- piano player, pianist, or whatever it's called, Hi. and who's, who's very skilled and professional, and he sometimes um, gives me advice about what I should listen to. And instead, I go on Spotify and listen to rock music or whatever you know Mm. I'm not really uh, I feel that it's very different with literature where I'm very familiar with the classics but I'm not with with music but yes I do think that music has a unifying force because it goes so deep in us it releases us somehow it plays on I'd say maybe that's a cliche but it plays on the strings of our heart Mm. uh, in in a way that words can't do I do really think that music appeals to something else in us that where words don't go, no matter. Even though poetry can go very deep, so can novels. But there is something in music. But I have a hard time putting words to it because I'm not used to talking about music. I just yeah. listen. Um, and I listen a lot to music. It's, it's. I always feel it's... It's good for me. Mm. And there was a lot of music I listened to while in these first tough months after the death of Raph, and it somehow comforted me. Mm. It gave me some kind of, even though temporary, then some kind of temporary inner harmony or somehow coming to terms with life, feeling part of it, not feeling expelled from it. I feel music is an invitation.
1: Mm. I sensed it correctly because I mean there are different genres of course but I mean you read also Mary Shelley uh, during the uh, this isolation process she says about music that she thinks it's an inspire of heroism and radiant thoughts and when we sort of when the pandemic came uh, to the world in Stockholm in the in Bärvalhallen where we work I mean we were quite reminded of the importance of music, I must say, because in the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was of course very hesitant and Mm. afraid and, and, and it was shaky. But in the Swedish radio, we had a very firm and clear statement from our director general Silla Benke that we should continue producing concerts and that it actually is more important now than ever. And I think that was a very beautiful situation for us because we are of obviously a broadcasting news broadcasting company yes we do news but we also do do culture and then yes. maybe culture is like the the purpose and the meaning and the hope
2: yes there was in contrast to your director there was a danish cultural minister mm. who is now no more cultural minister whose whose only statement when the corona pandemic hit us was to say now it's not appropriate to talk about culture. Hmm. But of course, it is more appropriate than ever. Um, because Also because culture turns things upside down in the way that it doesn't provide you with, it, with something that is basically necessary to go through life like drinks and food, and so on. But it, in a way, teaches you about that the most important in your life are the things you thought you didn't need. Mm. Uh, and that there is that kind of unexpected gift in, in culture. And I do think that many people during the pandemic, listening to music, watching TV series too, or reading books, felt that there was like invisible friends talking to them. I always had the idea, I often thought about what, what, what are my, who are my readers, because unless you're so fortunate to be invited out to give a talk, you never meet them. You do, in a way, sit at home at your desk writing into the big unknown. Mm. Um, and, and I then came up with a definition of my readers, that they were my unknown friends. And that is a paradox. But I do think that that is the paradox of of culture, that it is a communication between unknown friends. We haven't met, but in another way, deeper way, we meet. That's beautiful
1: and true, I think. Um, I mean, in this situation where we have all been uh, now for a lot of months, it's also beautiful, I think, that you sort of, we kept on playing, you kept on writing, and all the persons involved in some sort of cultural business that had the possibility, of course, there was a lot of unemployment situations for for a lot of persons during this period, of course, because no one, I mean, this is like the first time we can have an audience for for a very long time in in Stockholm tonight and probably here also. Um, I mean, I think it is something that we should treasure. and 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 remind ourselves of that that it it is truly important and uh, i mean the context if i go back to the context we are in in now uh, the baltic sea festival um it's and, and connect that also to the environmental question because i think the it's a big theme in your book obviously and um the idea of the festival started and i know that you know this because you you told me before that you have sort of made some research now and that's good because um uh, you will probably help me also in this the conductor esa pekka salon he's also the composer of the evening from one of the pieces he was going to take a swim with his children approximately 20 years ago in the Baltic Sea. And then it was rather impossible due to the massive algal blooms that was there. And he then decided to use his musical platform in order to put focus on the environmental question. And I think there is a connection there because you also have a big platform which you use to do approximately the same thing with. and there is a Dalai Lama quote that goes like, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. <laughs> so I sort of want to ask you now, how, what, what is your advice to the common person when the anxiety of the climate change hits? esa does
2: this, you do this, but what can we do, we, the common? Well, I, I'd like to add, when, when the climate is an important part of the book, it is also thanks to Raph, mm. uh, the young man who died, because he was a very prominent member of Extinction Rebellion, mm. the British climate activist group, which started seriously in 2019 and spread in no time to sixty countries and is still very active in spite of the pandemic. And and um, he left a lot of notes and scriptures about what it meant to him and how he why he had dedicated his his life to it. And he had a nickname for himself as an activist. He called himself Icky Fox. Um, and iki was kind of slang for Icarus, the figure from Greek mythology, but fox, of course, is a very clever animal that have many exits and therefore is hard to catch. And the day he died, a fox entered the British Parliament and walked, undisturbed, up to the fourth floor, sat down and shat on the floor. And everybody in Extinction Rebellion said, that's Raph. uh and yes uh, it it is I mean for obvious reasons a very important part of the book. but when I heard about this thing i mean being uh, part of the and, and Baltic festival being transmitted to the countries around the Baltic, including Norway, even though it 's a bit far away uh, then I have a, a very special Memory of a very close friend of mine, whose wife uh, tragically died when they were quite young, and uh, he went back to his uh, the, the island of his childhood, which is also my island, Er, in the Baltic south of the Funish archipelago. And and he went to the beach where he had had so many happy hours as a child and also that he'd been there with his wife and he was looking for a kind of comfort as we can do in nature because there is somehow also in landscapes and the big view of the horizon, a kind of comfort. And he went there full of these happy memories from childhood where uh, the sea was full of, you know, all sorts of seaweeds and so on, very fertile. And then he sat down there and there was nothing. It was completely empty, nothing was growing there. And in a tragic way, it became a mirror of his own loss. There was no comfort, on the contrary. It was emptiness staring him in the face, destruction of nature. Um, and, And, the Finnish composer, uh, what started him was that he wanted to go swimming by the coast, and the water was full of algae, and he didn't want to send his children into it. And and when I read a bit about the uh, Baltic, um, it is water coming from the North Sea that keeps the Bal- the, uh, the, the Baltic salty, and somehow in full of oxygen, which is so important for the fish and for the seaweeds. Um, And there is less and less of these waters from the North Sea streaming into the Baltic. And that makes it less salty, less oxygen, and that makes algae thrive. And when they thrive, and when they die, they sink to the b- bottom and absorb even more oxygen. So it's a kind of evil mm. circle that the Baltic right now finds itself in. And that is due to, um, to climate change. And, and so your, quest now, yeah. <laughs> that's your question, now there's your question. So what do we do individually? I mean, there's a lot of, of advice about um, flying less, mm. not eating meat. Uh, not driving so much in your car, taking public transport, changing your lifestyle and not going every summer to Thailand on holiday and so on. And I think it's all good advice. That is, in a way, an exercise in parting, but it's not going to stop the climate changes. That is only if we can together make the big political decisions about cutting down on CO2 one way or another, by totally stopping with carbon and oil. And fortunately, there is a growing industry of sustainability. I mean, windmills and sun cells and so on. But it is, if we don't act collectively, politically, it's not going to happen. And, and you see, I mean, 2019 with Greta Thunberg, who's, who I think is an absolutely unique character who's done so much good. I can't praise her enough. Uh, And the young people, Fridays for Future, and so on, Extinction Rebellion. The problem is, this is all what you could call direct democracy. This is happening in the streets. This is mobilizing young people. It's demonstrations. But how do you transfer that to traditional politics?
1: Talking about uh, Greta Thunberg, I saw her the other day on the street. Yes, that's a person that came from nowhere, yeah, and and, and starting a really big movement. Is she an inspiration source for you?
2: Yes, she is. I, because I think we need role models, and um, I I published a book back in 2018 called Towards the Stars, which was about young people and climate politics. And I mentioned there uh, some young politicians and activists as role models. And when I published it in Denmark, nobody had, outside of Sweden had heard about Greta Zunberg. Mm. And then when a few m- months later, she was world famous. So for the Swedish translation, I had to add an extra chapter about Greta because I felt it would be absurd to have a book published in Sweden where Greta was not part of it not mentioned yes she is I mean she's so knowledgeable and she bless her is not a politician she doesn't look for compromise she says the tough truths in a very eloquent way I mean her meeting at Davos for example in another place is British Parliament um, where, where um, and I think the established politicians need to be confronted like that. So I think she plays a very important role. She can't do it single-handedly, nor can the young ones. I mean, there is this kind of um, talk like, yes, but this is the job of the young people. No, it's not. It's the job of all of us. And it's a betrayal to leave it to the young people. But, you know, I have been thinking that there is this In in populist politics, Mm. there is this us and them divide. We can't talk to you, you are so different, you don't belong here, go away. Mm. But I think in climate politics, there is an other divide, which I will call between us and you, and you are the young people, and us are the established generations who sit on power. And we are somehow, you know, We pretend not to be climate skeptics. There were a lot of climate skeptics financed by the oil industry, by the way. Uh, But they have disappeared. Nobody dares somehow um, question that climate changes are man-made. But then they say, yes, yes, of course there are climate changes. But we are in no hurry. Let's take it easy. That's climate skeptics 2.0, I'd say the updated, clever version. So we don't need to make these big changes right now or we can wait for the technological fixes uh, which haven't been invented yet, but they will be. And so everything is fine and don't worry and don't panic and don't be an alarmist. Um, And that just means leaving the young generations with all the trouble. And we will be gone. We are dead. Mm. We don't have to worry. When the real big changes, disastrous changes happen, we are not here anymore. We don't have to worry. We are dead and gone. And I think there's a cynicism at the bottom of this, uh, oh, it's your young. It's, if we leave it to you. I mean, Obama, President Barack Obama, who was not exactly very efficient when it came to climate even though rhetorically Mm. he talked about it. And he said something that I think is a real truth. He said, we are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change, and we are the last one to do something about it. And I think that is a big, um, you know, challenging truth Mm. that we should really listen to and with the last generation to do something about it means not one generation, it means all of us. It means grandfathers and grandmothers, it means school children, and it means that generation in between that basically is the powerful one.
1: Will they be the answer? Hmm? Will they be the answer for for, for this?
2: Big no, but I, uh, the what, answer what? is all of us, I yeah. think. We must all of us mobilize. We must somehow, and this sounds like a political utopia, but we must unite. We must be in this together. How? Well, I've been by, by a mixture of many things, of, by a mixture of continuing the activism and uh, the attempt to persuade Established politicians and put pressure on them too. We did actually in Denmark in 2019 have uh, elections that were about climate. That was the most important themes in these elections, even though there were people who wanted to do it, make it an uh, election about the usual, the threat from the foreigners and the refugees and the migrants and immigrants. But it was politics. Climate politics, and that was thanks to the to the young people, um, and I'll say the present government has betrayed that, betrayed its own promise, but but we need to keep mobilising, and I do think also, I mean, there is a growing conscience in in business, banking, in um, various kind of you know where 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 sustainable things are produced and so on so it is slowly going there it's too slow but mm. but i again you can be pessimistic and you can be optimistic and right now i think the whole thing is in between but i mean you do see now that every year it gets worse and worse and it gets worse with a scary speed um with a summer, the, the wildfires, the forest fires spreading, absurdly high temperatures in Siberia, where forests are burning too. The continuing uh, attacks on the Amazon jungle from this horrible man, Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil. And, um, and thank God we got rid of Donald Trump. Hmm. Um, but but we need I mean action from high up and China is a big issue because as much as they are into sustainable energy in the same time they're opening a new coal mine every week mm. and that's not helpful but maybe music can be <laughs> <laughs> perhaps uh, yeah with some very forceful loudspeakers yeah <laughs> I,
1: and I mean it's not rock music tonight but um, I will tell you a little bit about what we are about to hear uh, really soon. Like, uh, bara några minuter uh, från nu. Klockan är fyra minuter och 30 sekunder till konsert. Um, jag börjar prata svenska nu, om det är okej. Okay. Eller skandinaviska, vi får se om jag får in ett danskt ord. Det är nämligen så att den här kvällen för vår orkester i Sverige, i Stockholm, är... Uh, –historisk eftersom vi inte haft publik på väldigt, väldigt länge i salen. Så det kommer bli en, en, en magi, tror jag, ikväll som kommer gå att känna genom rutan. Eh, temat för festivalen är på engelska Rebirth, och eh, före paus så kommer ni få höra eh, fyra stycken. –där kompositören Anders Hillborg och kompositören Esa-Pekka Salonen– –har komponerat musik med inspiration från gamla mästare. Så Anders Hillborg har blivit inspirerad av Beethoven och Esa-Pekka är inspirerad av Bach. Och detta kommer vi få höra innan paus. Efter paus är det Sibelius andra symfoni. Och den skulle jag vilja påstå om någon– –är en Inspire of Radiant Thoughts. Jag hoppas och tror att det här, oavsett om det är klassisk musik– –eller rockmusik, eller om det är poesi, eller om det är litteratur eller konst– –vad det än handlar om, faktiskt kan göra en skillnad. Du skriver i slutet av boken– precis innan det sista kapitlet, och nu går jag tillbaka till engelska- för det är så här jag har förberett If we want to, we will collectively raise the magic wand- that consists of action, protest and rebellion- and stop the forces that will cover the planet with ashes. And then I say, why not do that with the help of music
2: and literature- what do you think? But I think that's a great idea and a necessary idea. And and like in, I know more about writers doing it, of course. But there is uh, in in the UK, there is now with inspiration from Extinction Rebellion, uh, a group called Writers Rebel that are very engaged in climate questions. And my wife has been part of organising it. And in Denmark too, there is now beginning to be. Writers organizing around uh, climate issues, so so it is happening, and I think that all art is so important and part of this, uh, and I mean not as a kind of propaganda or didactic, but simply by showing us the world and appreciating its wonders, the wonders that are under threat with the sixth mass extinction with a loss of biodiversity and so on. And we, were, we had a demonstration, some Danish writers, uh, one day here in Copenhagen before, in, in back in um, late May. And one of the things we did, there is a, a list of plants and uh, animals that have gone extinct in Denmark, and it's frighteningly long. And we read from it, and just in the names of all these extinct species, there's so much poetry. They have such beautiful names. You can see how, you know, researchers, biologists, bot- botanists, zoologists, that you might think of as quite dry scientists, that the meeting with the wonders of all these species created poems in them. It, their names are often like little poems. And that's why we need. Uh, art and music
0: Du har lyttet til en podcast fra Det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast app. Hvis du kunne lide hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre der også kunne være interesseret. Hvis du har kommentar til podcasten, så find den sorte diamant på Facebook hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jakobsen.